word-rooted prayer and worship, keeping your heart close to the flame. And this is the fourth Sunday where we've looked at this particular subtitle, New Testament Worship and the 21st Century Church. And if you remember, we began unpacking the principles for determining how we're supposed to worship in this place. Because deeply embedded, deeply embedded in all of our psyches is the idea that how I worship when I go to church is up to me. Some people are outgoing, some people are quiet, some people are emotional, some people are staid and It's just deeply embedded in our thinking that the way in which we worship, once we're here, well, that's entirely up to personal preference. And this whole series is designed to say that's not true. It may be deeply felt and thought to be true. It is not true. It never has been true. I mean, we all have our fallible tastes, but we are not measuring our worship by style here. Our tastes in worship, of course, have been shaped by a lot of things, from upbringing, temperament, past teaching in different denominational backgrounds. None of that's bad. I'm simply saying none of it is reliable. Not anyone's background, including Pentecostals. No one's background is the measuring stick for biblical worship and how it's to happen in a congregational level. If you just think back a little bit, right at the very beginning of this series, remember Isaiah, he sees a throne. The smoke clears and there's this throne high and lifted up. And we're supposed to get the idea of kings sit on thrones. God on the throne. God decides how he's going to be worshipped. That's what kings do. Then we studied Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? You should remember him all your life. Uzzah, who just wanted to reach out and steady the Ark of the Covenant from falling off that cart, and he reaches out and he tries to hold it up, and God strikes him dead. God strikes him dead for disobeying worship instructions around the ark of the Lord. And so worship truly isn't relegated by human taste or sincerity. Fast forward to last week. You'll probably remember we nailed down a couple of points. First, that the Old Testament must always be interpreted in light of the complete revelation of the New Testament. You don't start with the old and interpret the new. You start with the new and look back at the old. That is not because the New Testament is holier than the Old Testament or the New Testament is more inspired than the Old Testament. That's not it at all. It's just the New Testament has the completed story. I gave examples of that, looking at Adam and Eve and a number of things. Finally, maybe you'll remember this. I put up this really long point that I said, don't confuse the point with the sermon itself. The point was basically this, that we should major on worship expressions that are seen to be 
permanently binding for the church for either of two reasons. Permanently binding because they are carried over from the New Testament to the New. They keep going. Or B, they are introduced in the New Testament, patterns of worship, that are stated clearly to be ongoing. You can think of an example. The Lord's Supper, this due till when? Till he comes. He hasn't come. We have to keep doing that. Simple. Baptism. I don't know why the tank's gone. Well, trees, I guess. Baptism in the Great Commission. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. So we know that's supposed to keep going because Jesus said so. So look for worship patterns. Remember this, okay? Try hard. That are either spoken of in the Old Testament but are seen to be carried over, continued in the New, or they're introduced in the New Testament and they're stated specifically to be ongoing. Now what we did... Last Sunday, we started with the last part of that statement first. Expressions of worship that are introduced in the New Testament and they're seen to be permanent additions. Talked about a number of things. What I want to do now is look at the first part of that statement. Expressions of worship carried over from the Old Testament into the New. There are a lot of things that are done in the Old Testament in worship forms that were perfectly fine, I'm sure, but are never mentioned again in the New Testament. We don't do those things. We don't worry about them. doesn't mean they were wicked. They aren't for the church age. But there are others that are done in the Old Testament, and they're picked up and continued in the New, and that's what we're looking at. So you all with me? Humor me. Like, yeah. Oh, boy, Pastor Don, yeah. Yeah, oh, I know. Settle down, settle down. I know this is exciting. Here we go. One, the lifting of hands to the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 4 says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Anyone with a good concordance can find scores of references of lifting hands to the Lord in the Old Testament. Just the bulk of references is really quite amazing. But that's not why we raise hands and worship to the Lord. And we don't do it because, well, we're a Pentecostal church, and you know those charismatics, they're a little wingy to start with, and so they just like doing stuff like that. God bless them. No, that's not it either. Not even close. In the New Testament, we find... Something else of even greater importance for the worship of the church. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Isn't that great if you can do that? It's getting rare, isn't it? Watch the news. Godly, dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all people to be saved 
and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men. The man, the man. Notice that, Christ Jesus. He ascended in a body. He still has a body. He's the man, Christ Jesus. The first spot of a brand new creation is done. But it's just the first spot. Who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle and telling the truth and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It's a very important passage of Scripture because it does what I was talking about. It takes a very common Old Testament practice of worship and it says in the New Testament, you, you need to keep doing this. Paul, and through Paul, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, takes this very common Old Testament practice of lifting up hands to the Lord. The very same thing David did. The very th same thing Solomon did. Nobody told him to. Solomon, the dedication of the temple, you read the account. Where did he learn that? There was no worship leader saying, come on, people, lift your hands. Wasn't that? As he dedicates the temple, you read the text, and he stretches out his hands to God, and he prays at the dedication of the temple. Who told him to do that? So this very common practice in the Old Testament, and then Paul urges, maybe that's not enough, mandates the New Testament church Make sure this practice is perpetuated in its prayer and worship times. Well, Pastor Don, I think you're stretching that a bit. I think that was just kind of a, a cultural thing that Paul was giving to the church. I don't, I don't think you can say that really applies today. Which is why I took the time to read a lot more verses in Paul's instructions to Timothy, then just the verse about lifting hands. Because well, what are we going to do with the rest of the instructions in the same context in Paul's letter to Timothy? What about modesty? Is that still a Christian virtue for the church today? Because it's in the same passage with the command to lift up hands. Is it still God's will that we pray for our leaders? Because that's embedded in the very same sentence. And what about when Paul says that it is God's will that all people everywhere should be saved, verse 4? Is that just a cultural tidbit as well? See, there's, there's really nothing culturally specific looking in that passage. It's just not good hermeneutics to take a phrase and say, I'm not crazy about that one. Let's just say that one is culturally. Clearly, also Paul wanted people everywhere to lift up holy hands in their corporate times of prayer and worship. And not today, but I'm going to spend one whole message on, on that whole thing because I think it's so, so careful, Don. I was going to say poorly understood. It, it, it's not maybe appreciated as much as it could be. I want to look at now another expression of worship carried over from the Old Testament to the New. Point number two, bowing, kneeling before the Lord in worship and devotion. Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come. We sing this, don't we? 
Let us, let us worship. What kind of worship? Well, bow down, kneel before the Lord our, our maker. Again, this is only one of many references of bowing before the Lord in worship. And then the New Testament picks up on that, reemphasizes it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Kneeling. Kneeling before the Lord, it, it just befits intensity of desire in prayer and recognition of the greatness of God's glory. Kneeling humbles a creature before the Creator. I'm in, I'm in my proper place before God when I'm on my knees. Now, we, haven't, we used to do it a lot. And, and now that we've got concrete where you're sitting, and now that we've squeezed more seats in between where you are and the back of the seat in front of you, we, I, I don't think I've done that in years. But it was a common practice where Sunday I'd say, let's just, let's just all kneel together. And now I miss it. I really do. Um, when I pray lots of times, even in my office, I just, I just, I like to be low before God. I'm either pacing back and forth or kneeling. Kneeling says, I'm, I'm the creature. You're the creator. And there's enough in all of our lives that we do reasonably well with reasonable amounts of success and moderate amounts of applause and praise of people that inwardly kneeling doesn't come naturally for us anymore. We're pretty successful people. We know what we're doing. And, and I can't tell you the number of times where the Lord just speaks to my heart and says, Don, you're just, a, you're just a child kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Don't ever forget that that's where you belong. And it's not loveless. It's divinely instructive and humbling for all of us. There will come a time, you know. There will come a time. God is eternally interested in this expression of worship. And as Paul's mind races toward the still unseen future, he can't get away from it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, at the, look at this, at the name of Jesus, just at the name, every knee should bow. Where? Well, heaven, on earth, under the earth, pick your place. This is where creation belongs before the Lord. Now, that's not going to be a saving confession by everyone. They'll just be forced to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. But the world will be on its knees. And it won't be to, to, to any other deity, any other religion. Everyone from every faith on planet Earth is going to kneel and bow at the name of Jesus. Kneeling before the Lord so transcends any culture or period of time that Paul says the day is coming when all creation will recognize its validity. Okay, three. 
singing. Singing plays a vital part in scriptural worship in both the Old and New Testaments. I've already considered the expression of worship. And remember the story of Jehoshaphat? He's got all these enemies amalgamated against him. And it's the end. Any one of those enemies could defeat Israel. But now the three of them are united against him and it looks like his days are numbered and God speaks to him and says, this is not your battle to fight. And he says, send out the singers and musicians and they go out in front, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And as they worship, God scatters the enemy. The sheer power of song. Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. You know what he's talking about there? They crossed, they crossed the sea. Pharaoh and all his horses and chariots come after. God closes the waters, and they're gone. What's the response? Sing. Sing. Of course, no one talked about this more than King David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. After you see that in the Old Testament, the scriptures, in keeping with this principle, they reaffirm the abiding place of song in the worship of the New Testament church. Look at, look at Jesus facing the agony of the cross, and he deliberately takes time to sing a hymn with his disciples. Have you noticed that? It's in Mark, Mark 14, 22 to 26. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after the blessing, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And then he said to them, this is my, the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Question, why didn't Jesus just pray with them before they went out to the Mount of Olives? Wouldn't that work? Just, Father, give them strength and courage and bless this great event. And Why didn't he just do that? He, he prays because singing engages the mind and helps embed truth at a deeper level. When you put something to music and sing the words, they stay with you more. Some of the great moments of the church, they continued to resolve around singing. You know this story. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. So you beat them up good and then throw them into prison. This is not a prison with color TVs and pool tables. This is a dungeon. They aren't ushered in. They're beaten black and blue and tossed in, however they land when they hit the floor. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. By the way, put a, put a comma there. I just want to say something. What you see described here, great earthquake, the foundations of the prison were shaken, the doors were opened, the bonds were unfastened. What you're reading about there is just an actual historic space-time happening that really took place. What, what I want to emphasize is this. There's all sorts of people. It's very trendy now. Uh, people sort of deconstructing their faith. And there's a part of your faith that you can deconstruct. Your response in your head, your emotional response to the things of the gospel, that's up to you. You can believe it, you can mock it, you can follow it, you can reject it. That part you can deconstruct. Here's the part you can't deconstruct. There, the events, there really was an earthquake. Your response to it is irrelevant. It really did shake that prison. The doors really were open. John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It was Sunday. There was a day when John received his revelation on Patmos. You don't have to agree with the revelation. You can say it's nonsense. What the event happened on Sunday. Have you noticed when Paul talks about his experience on the Damascus Road, he talks about it three times. And in Acts 26, when he describes the voice that he heard from heaven, he says something that he doesn't say in the first two descriptions. He says, and the Lord spoke to me in the Hebrew language. Think about that. This wasn't some inner psychological experience of Paul. It was Hebrew. Hebrew nouns, phrases, punctuation. So the tomb was empty on Easter. You can't deconstruct the facts. You can only deconstruct your response to the facts because Christianity is a historically rooted faith in real space-time events that happen just like I'm talking to you is a real event. You don't have to listen. You don't have to like what I say. But what you can't undo is, I'm talking to you. That's the nature of the Christian faith. The only thing you can deconstruct, I don't really like it anymore. That's as far as you can go. You can't touch the core of what the Christian faith actually is, historic events that really happened. That has nothing to do with the message that I'm... Okay, so what I was talking about, remember, there really was an earthquake. Believe in it, don't believe in it, but the cell door was open. But they were singing. I can't tell you the number of times people have come up to me to relate how God really, really, really touched their hearts and their lives and humbling for me. It wasn't while I was preaching. It was while they were singing something to the Lord and God touched their heart. I want to show you something else important on singing. James underscores the importance of responding to the different seasons of life 
with proper expressions of prayer and song. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Just pause, because this text says more than people think. Singing, here it is. Singing is as important a response to blessing as prayer is to suffering. Singing is an as important a response to blessing as prayer is to suffering. We all know we should pray when there's a need. That's what we do. James is saying, are you, are you here today? Are you here today and you're not sick? Are you here today and you have a job? Are you here today and you live in a nice warm house on a cold winter night? Are you here and your family is serving the Lord? It's a sin for you not to sing. It's a sin. You ought to be lifting your voice in praise to God. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Sing. I love the fact, to my mind, this is a singing church. I visit different churches, and boy, the number of churches that mumble away when there's a great song to be sung. Lift your voice. You might be the worst singer in the place. Ask the guys that have been coming to Brotherhood the last, we've done three, right? Three or four. And I said at the very first one, how singing helps to ingrain truth. It isn't just an emotional thing. It ingrains truth. You proclaim it, and the truth gets deeper in your heart. You should hear those guys. You should hear, we open every brotherhood singing one or two hymns. There's no accompaniment. I'm telling you, these guys are good. And we sing loud. Last brotherhood, we opened up with, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And they sang that they belted that out. And that he died for me. Sing. It's the proper response. We all know how this works. Singing embeds stuff in our minds. Probably to this day, when you think of the alphabet, you do something like this. A, B, C, D. You know that great hymn of the church? E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. But you don't just say uh, A, B, C, D, E. You, that tune carries the letters. That's the power of song. That's the power of song. You're witnessing it. Notice Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to your God, singing to each other. People need exhortation. They need encouragement. Take time to be holy. Trust and obey. My faith has found a resting place. Blessed assurance. These hymns have been sung 
to one another for centuries in the body of Christ. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Let me, let me go over a, a, another kind of pet thing with me. Psalms is mentioned first. This is all in Ephesians 5.19. Psalms is mentioned first because we, we sing the word, scripture. That's what the early church did. It sang psalms, embedding biblical truth in the mind. Hymns. They probably got that pattern from Jesus himself, singing hymns. And they quickly became longer, more doctrinally oriented songs they quickly form much of the traditional creedal background of the church. Finally, spiritual songs. This would equate to many of the worship songs that we sing in church today. Songs that usually are more experience-oriented than hymns that heighten the immediacy and closeness of the Lord, which is, by the way, why you need hymns and spiritual songs. Here's the important point I want to make here. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.19. Paul says, do, do all those things. No one should be allowed, no one form should be allowed to replace the other two. And what typically happens, I think, in 80% of evangelical churches, what very quickly happens is that we take these three forms of song that the Bible mandates and we create styles from them. And so typically what you'll have, the typical model of a church will have, we have the morning service, people here, we have Christian education with another teaching time for everybody and we have a different service Sunday night with another teaching time. So three teaching times every Sunday is what we do. Nobody else does that much anymore. So what typically happens is you have a service with children's ministries. You'll have another service with children's ministries and the same teaching in both services. The difference is you'll have usually a traditional service or a classical service and then a contemporary service. And what typically happens is you put the hymns in your traditional classical service and you put the worship songs with the big band and the lights and all that. You put that in your contemporary service. Nothing wrong with it, except that I think what it does do is it, is it lets us treat these three forms of singing, it lets us treat them as personal preferences. I like the spiritual songs. I'm going to the contemporary service. I like hymns. I'm going to go to the traditional service. And what it does is it makes people choose one style of music or another when the Bible says these three forms of singing should be in every church. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Worship should never be stacked up on the foundation of taste and style. Four. Both the Old and New Testaments lift up the value of spoken praise and worship to God. I'm almost done. Well, at least I'm getting close. Uh-oh, I went the wrong way. Here we go. Spoken praise to God. 
of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my, not mind. Did you notice that? He's not talking about his meditative thoughts. He's talking about stuff that comes out of here. Mouth, praise. You can meditate silently. You cannot praise silently. You can contemplate silently and should. You can't praise silently. I thank you in the midst of the great congregation. The mighty throng, I will praise you. It's talking about something that happens when they're all together. Maybe these the best known of all the words in the Old Testament. Because of your steadfast love, because it's better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my, my hands. So here again, what we're stressing is the fact that this emphasis on verbal praise offered to the Lord is picked up again in the New Testament. Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, he says he wants to be clear, the fruit of what? That acknowledge his name. Let's take a moment just to sum up these teachings. We've looked at two principles for determining how we worship in church. First, practices carried over from the Old Testament into the New. That's what we've been looking at this morning. Second, practices initiated and presented as binding in the New Testament. Most of you will know that I've had, you know, in the, in the years I've been here, I've bumped into it over and over again. I'm really not that interested. I'm not that interested in getting worked up about passing fads in worship, listen, that have no biblical grounding in the clear teaching of the New Testament. Uh, people do all sorts of stuff. God bless them. They can do whatever they want. They do Jericho marches, wave offerings, dancing before the Lord, just a host of things which I'm not saying they're wicked. I'm simply saying they're never once mentioned in the worship practice of the New Testament church. Never once. I think a lot about Paul's words where he talks, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, about not going beyond what is written. That's a great phrase. That's in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, not going beyond what is written. Don't leave anything out. Oh, Pastor Don, I don't like raising my hand. I don't really care. Tell God. Not going beyond what is written. Include everything that is written and just don't worry or fuss much about the stuff that isn't. People will always want something new. They'll always want something different. We all have enough spiritual pride to want to do things our own way. But if we can, I'm talking about just this church. In humble dependence on the Lord and with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, if we can reject things not taught in the Word and not leave out anything that the Scriptures command. I have this feeling 
I have this feeling we'll just be right about where Jesus wants us to be. And you can't help but be fruitful there. Just be where Jesus wants you to be. You keep your life clean, you'll keep your worship biblical, and you'll keep his presence living in our midst. I'm okay with that, aren't you? I don't need anything more than that.